Good morning. <clears throat> so there's nothing uh, particularly controversial about the passage this morning. So you may be wondering why I am preaching instead of sharing. Um, and the answer is actually that every passage of the Bible is really controversial. If you really get, if we really understand what the author is saying, we really get it, then the, the right response of any passage of the Bible is, could, could he really be saying that? <laughs> could it really mean that? Could it really mean that about God? Could it really mean that about me? Could it really mean that about the world? That's every passage uh, is really controversial. So um, I guess that means I should be preaching every Sunday here, Darren. I don't know. No, no, we don't want that. <laughs> you need to hear from your pastor. Um, but actually, probably the reason I'm up here is because I, I have an insight into this passage because I, the passage is about being a landlord, and I'm a landlord. So let's look at it together. Stand, if you would. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 12, and you can follow along in your bulletin. This is the RSV version. Again, Mark chapter 12 and beginning in verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and let it out to tenants and went into another country. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. They wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. And they tried to arrest him, but feared the multitude, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to entrap him in his talk. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to you. Please make yourselves comfortable. So this morning, I'd like to teach you how to read parables. I'd like to teach you how to interpret parables that you read. I mean, we get a few parables in the Gospel of Mark here, and we get many more in the other Gospels. And I know that some of you, in your reading, your own reading of the Gospels, you come to a parable and you say, what is this supposed to mean? How am I supposed to understand this? 
and uh, you struggle with it. So I'm going to make it very easy for you. I'm going to give you two rules about interpreting parables. If you come to a parable in, in reading in the New Testament and, and you say, how do, I, how do I approach this? Okay, here's how to approach it. Two rules, very important rules. You get these and you will be able to understand and interpret the meaning of the parables and apply it to your life. Okay, so first rule, most important rule, big rule, okay? Rule number one, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus, okay? So if you're going to understand any parable that you read, especially this one, you need to look around what's going on in the life of Jesus Christ when the parable is given, okay? So if it's about Jesus here, you look at this and what's going on, Jesus in, this is Mark chapter 12. Jesus had just entered into Jerusalem, okay? And he had encountered a number of different uh, folks and groups there. And then he tells this parable. So when you want to interpret, you want to say, okay, what's the correspondence? Just draw a one-to-one -one correspondence with the people or characters or groups in the parable and with what's happening in real life. So let me ask you this. If it's about Jesus, who are the wicked tenants in this story? Who could... Raise their hand and, and tell me. Yes, who are the wicked? Very good, very good. You have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees. Actually, there are a number of religious groups and leaders there. Uh, some are mentioned in this, in this passage. And that actually turns out to be what happens in what's going on in Jesus' life. After he tells this parable, if you go and read on in the chapter, you'll find that what happens next is that Jesus encounters these three different groups, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, and he has an encounter with each one of them which shows them to be wicked. And with few exceptions, there are a few exceptions, thank God, in Jerusalem, he meets people who are really good tenants of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem's like a vineyard and it has been entrusted to these leaders. And what we find, what Jesus, when Jesus interacts with them, what he's finding is that they're wicked tenants. These leaders that had been given so much by God and had all the resources could have done so much in Jerusalem. Instead, he's finding them to be wicked. And that's actually what happens. You know, in verse 8, what happens in the story and the parable is almost the unthinkable. And right after the parable, Mark describes, verse 12, them deciding what they're going to do to take out Jesus. And verse 13, they proceed to start doing it. So this is actually what's going on right before them. So you connect that to, to parable, to what you go in, what's going on in Jesus' life, you start to understand what it means. Okay, before I go to the second rule of interpreting parables, let me just withdraw this out for us, what, what it means here for Jesus uh, to be the thing about which the parable is. Sorry about that. So let me ask you this. If we've, we realize who the wicked tenants are, who is the owner of the vineyard? The landlord. Okay, who can tell me that? Who can raise their hand and tell me that? Yes. Good, see? You can do this, right? The owner of the vineyard is God. Okay, makes sense, right? Okay, if the owner of the vineyard is God, then who's the son of the owner? You can tell me. Jesus Christ is the son of the owner. 
right? So what is Jesus Christ calling himself in this passage? You can say it. The Son of God. So Jesus is calling himself the Son of God. You see that? And it's not just Son of God like an avatar that, you know, is kind of whooshed in and uh, kind of gives us an image and whooshes away. And it's not the Son of God like, you know, we're all sort of children of, of, the, of the Lord. You know, we all, uh, all people are children of the Lord. Not that. No, 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 no. He's the unique Son of God, right? Because that's what makes this parable make sense. You see what they do in verses 6 and verse 7? The reason why their plot is going to work is because there's only one Son, right? The only, one and only, what later becomes in John's gospel, the title, only begotten. So Jesus is, is, is making the story here so that there's, there's one and only son, unique son of God. And what he's saying here is he is the unique image of the Almighty. He is the radiance. He's the one. You look at him, you see him. You see the Father. You see God. That's what he's claiming here. Just realize what he's saying about this. And this is why their, their plan is going to work. Because if they kill off the heir, there's only one heir, then, you know, when the landlord dies, this becomes, in ancient terms, becomes what was called an ownerless property. And, ownerless, and you, if you have an ownerless property, it goes to the first claimant. First one who shows up to claim it goes to him. So they said, this is our plan. This is how the plan's going to work. It's because he is the only begotten. So this is, what Je- this is who we're dealing with now. And this is who Jesus is saying that we're dealing with when we're dealing with Christ. You know, <clears throat> back when I was pastoring a church in New York, you know, <clears throat> preaching every week on controversial passages, um, well, at one point we had to hire an administrator. I remember I wanted to hire someone from within the congregation, and we did. But she was very nervous because she was thinking, gosh, I've got to meet with the pastor. If I'm the administrator, she had to meet with me, with the pastor every week. And she got a little bit nervous about this. Like, yeah, imagine meeting with the pastor every week. Like, your life is exposed. What's it going to be like? And I remember my wife taking her aside and <clears throat> to talk to her. And she says, she took her aside and she says, you know, Alex, he's just a guy. He's just a guy. Turns out she was right. Okay, I was just a guy. (laughs) As Alex pretty quickly afterwards found out uh, in meeting with me, it was just a guy. Well, so the thing was, with, with Jesus, there was no one coming around telling the disciples, you know, he's just a guy. You know, don't get so nervous about this. He's just a guy. There was no one saying that about him. In fact, he wasn't even saying that about him. In fact, he was saying just the opposite. He was saying, no, no, I am not just a guy. Other people weren't saying that. We're saying that. He wasn't saying that. And we got to understand this if we're, if we're dealing with this one, who he's claiming to be, the Almighty, the image of, of the Great One, the radiance of the Almighty God. Okay, so that's rule number one for the parables. Okay, rule number two, just as simple. See, the, you're going to be a parable interpreting experts because these are simple. 
I'm going to make it very easy for you. Rule number two, always, and this is usually missed, so make sure you get this. When you're interpreting parables, this is the second rule. Bring your feelings with you. Bring your feelings to the parable with you. You do that, you can interpret it. That is, ask yourself, what does this story make me feel? Kind of try to forget what you feel like you're supposed to feel in a a religious sense, like when you're reading what kind of religious, pious thoughts you're supposed to have, and ask yourself, what does this story make me feel? In this case, through our emotive reactions, what this parable is teaching us is the right way to look at God and the right way to look at other people. And so the feelings provide the point of the parable for us because it brings out for us, if you really kind of think about, well, what do I feel about this is, if I, this is really happening, if this story were really happening? What do I feel about it? And that gives you the point of the parable because the point is really the outrageous behavior of the people in the, in the parable, the, the outrageous behavior of the tenants and then the outrageous beha- uh, behavior of the landlord. So let's look at this. I want to uh, talk to you about your feelings about these tenants, but to help us do that, I want to give us a little more context because this landlord um, in verse 9 called the owner of the vineyard, he's gone to a lot of trouble. And we might not pick that up, but I want to I help us get into um, verse 1 here and what it's saying is verse 1. Jesus Christ would understand this Jesus Christ's audience would understand this much better than we would. Well, first of all, this landlord builds an enclosure. It's, in this translation, it's hedge, but it could be a number of different things. Probably for this property, it's going to be a wall. And so what I had here, this is a, a wall, kind of an Israelite wall from Samaria, just to show you the extent of what we're talking about here. This isn't just some nice little picket fence. Okay, this is a big production. If you're going to actually provide security for a vineyard, okay, you're going to be building a big wall. And this is kind of an example of the big wall. So we're not just talking about something simple. Okay, then he builds a wine press. And a wine press is another, here's a kind of reconstructed wine press from Yad Hashmanoah. And uh, actually, it even has a little bit more there and has a crusher in the middle. But what, what it shows is that you have different compartments that you have to excavate from the geography there. Um, a lot of times it's built into a cliff because you need, you need two collections, says you need crushing, a crushing kind of enclosure compartment. And then you also need these collecting stations. Here, this one has two. This is a beautiful one that's been restored. But I just, just, this, is a, this is an extensive construction project. I just want you to see the uh, kind of material outlay here of, of what this landlord went through for him. And it would provide just not only economic uh, kind of sustenance and production for the community, but actually it would provide community itself. And here's a kind of reproduction of the, uh, the press at Avdat. And what we have here are people doing what you need to do to process wine, which is stomping on the graves. 
because the, actually producing wine is not something you can do by yourself. It takes a whole community to do it, to harvest the grapes, to get them in, and to crush them. And you can see this is kind of a great picture because it shows that they're having a really good time as they're doing this together. And so what you have when you have a wine press is you have a community building structure. It's a structure that built community, brought people together over this common cause. And so uh, this was one of the things that would be going on in this community. And then, of course, getting the juice uh, would be terrific um, for them. And then he's not finished. Still, in verse 1, you see there's something else that he does. He builds a tower, and this is um, a reproduction, a kind of, not a reproduction, but a restored uh, tower. You can find these actually all throughout the remains of these towers, all throughout the hill country of Judea, scattered around. They're still there. But this one's uh, restored well and begins to show you uh, kind of what would be involved in building this tower. The tower would be for security. It would provide shelter for people who were working in the vineyard. And it would also keep out kind of marauders. Thieves were important so you would have a watchtower so you could see and and guard against thieves and animals you you know there would be jackals that get in and also these guys here's a fox uh, which would also be you know a danger to the grapes this one's right from outside of Jerusalem but they were around too so all of this to say this was a big enterprise it was expensive okay there was a lot of capital that was uh, that that went into this that had been part of the outlay for this. And it was all to create a beautiful space and a beautiful place for people to to live and to raise their families. You know, our own experience with landlords might kind of cut against this, and we might get the wrong impression, you know, to to think that, you know, the landlord could be a good guy in the story, right? Because we have have these different experiences with landlord might point us in the other direction. Um, when I first met my wife, she was living on Carroll Street in Brooklyn, and she, she had this awful landlord. I mean, he was just heinous. Uh, when, this, when I first met her, she, he was threatening her, and he was going to sue her, and she was just walking around in fear of her landlord. And I actually spent some time on the phone with him, and he was awful. He was a terrible person. <laughs> So, you know, I actually think uh, kind of the main reason that she married me was to be rescued from her <laughs> landlord. <laughs> Terrible. So if we have this idea in our heads of, of, of landlords, this is what it is, it makes us hard to enter into this story. Not with this landlord. This landlord was doing, he was going beyond the pale. He was, he was doing everything that was needed to provide a safe environment and a, and a well environment, a beautiful environment. You know, now on the other side, turns out I'm a landlord now, and I get to see the other side of it, and uh, you know the hassles that landlords go through, and and uh, some of the pressures and the trials. But I I I finally figured out as a landlord, if you're going to be a landlord the way that God wants you to be a landlord, then what it is about is providing a safe and beautiful place for people to raise their families. So we have this apartment that we rent out, and, you know, that's what it turns out to be. And, I, and you can get into that. There's a lot of joy in being able to provide a place where you see people actually raising their families because we know God loves families prospering. He just loves that. 
And so it's, 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 this is what is on the side of a good landlord, but this landlord, and I put this up here, just see you, give you a sense of the feeling here of what it would be like to live in what this landlord had made. He made a place for them, um, every provision, to live well, to live safely, to build community, to work easily. He was technologically up to date. Uh, you know, Jesus was not original in telling this parable. Actually, somebody told this parable before Jesus, a parable very much like this. Could anybody raise their hand and tell me who that was? You know, who told this parable before Jesus? This is a hard one. Good, good try, close. It was actually Isaiah. Isaiah gives this parable, very similar parable to this in Isaiah chapter 5. And God speaking through Isaiah says this. This is what he says in Isaiah 5 about a very similar situation. Quote, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? Unquote. You see, what God is saying uh, verbally there, Jesus says in verse 1 really pictorially for us in giving us this image of, of a vineyard you couldn't have done more for uh, the people, the tenants who were there. They had it so good. Okay? So now we can bring our feelings in and look at verse 2. After all this preparation, the landlord's sense collect his due and the tenants react. Okay. And when you're reading these, verse 2, verse 3, what does this make you feel about the tenants? What are your feelings about the tenants? Okay, pastor's wife says, they're crazy. <laughs> Very good. Other, other reactions? Yeah? Unthankful. unthankful, good. Crazy, unthankful. Other reactions that you have? Greedy, good. Yeah, what? Funny? Yeah, they're funny. They're weird. They're out, of, they're out of the box. That's right. They're crazy. So what you should be feeling here is outrage. And, and then you're entering into the parable, right? You're outraged. How could they be so ungrateful? How could they be so crazy? And here's the thing. What happens after that is that from the landlord comes more patience more long-suffering. You see that? In fact, the more good the landlord is, the more long-suffering he shows, the more wicked they become. And that, friends, is often how it happens. This is why Jesus' parables are so good, because they tell us what things often are like. The more good, the more long-suffering he shows, the more wicked they're becoming. The greater the presence of goodness, very often the more wicked wickedness becomes. So back to real life. You know what the irony was in the situation of what was going on with Jesus? It was just that. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. He was doing so much good. But the, but the more good that he, became, he did, the more wicked the leaders became. It's crazy. But that's what, was, that's what we see happening. The sun actually brought out the worst in the leaders of Jerusalem. The worst got worser. 
You actually want to see a great kind of story that illustrates this? I would recommend that Broadway show called Wicked, actually. I don't know, how many of you ever, ever catch that production? It's been around for a while now. I bring it up because they're going to make a movie of it next. You know, after they get through this debacle about cats. Ugh. <laughs> after that's all over, the next one they're going to make a movie of, the next Broadway show will be Wicked. And I recommend it, if you haven't seen it, see it. Because it's this, it's this very story. It's a deconstruction of the Wizard of Oz, which we shouldn't mind, right? It's the Wizard of Oz, who cares, right? So they're deconstructing the Wizard of Oz, but they're telling the story of the witch of the West, and she turns out to be really good. And the more good that she is, the more good she tries to be to the people around her, the more wicked they become. It's just this very story that was happening here with Jesus in real life. So Jesus Christ, even verse 13, you look at verse 13. Jesus Christ's goodness unites the Pharisees with the Herodians. They did not like each other. <laughs> so even that was going on. His goodness is like fanning their hatred. And so his long sufferings met with greater wickedness. And then, fortunately, there comes a reckoning. And this parable is teaching us to understand and desire the coming of the landlord to clarify things, right? And when you read verse 9, okay, he shows up. How do you feel? How do you feel in verse 9? You feel scared? Okay. Any other reactions? Relieved? Okay, I'll go with Craig this time. I'll go with that one. <laughs> I think that's where we're being led to. We're, we're led to being relieved, okay, so long as we're not one of the tenants, you know. <laughs> yes, okay. Step away from the tenants. Step away from the tenants. If you are not one of the tenants, what you should be feeling is relief. And that you should be feeling relieved. This is teaching us how to think about the final judgment that when you think about the final judgment, what you should be thinking about is this is the time when those wrongs will be righted, when every injustice will be met. Every ambiguous problem situation that was misread and misinterpreted in your life will be reinterpreted to be truthful. So if you've had any injustice against yourself or you're upset about injustices that you see around you, this is the way that you should think of final judgment. It is going to be a time when things are clarified, when justice will be done, and there, there will be a relief. That's when wrongs will be righted. Okay, so that's the, the tenets, outrageous tenets. Let's, let's look at the landlord. How do you feel about this landlord? Now, try to, try to think that you know, separate yourself from what you, you're knowing who the landlord is and just say, in the story, how do you feel about the landlord? How do you, like, how do you feel when he sends the third servant? <laughs> what do you think about this guy? Long-suffering, Long yeah. Okay, so I'm getting something along the same lines here. The long-suffering, a big heart. Yeah? 
lack of common sense. Okay, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven, let me tell you that. <laughs> so these answers are answers maybe we've processed it for a while. But if you're hearing this story, I would say that's the, that's the response that's more appropriate. This guy is gullible. Like, what employer would do this? Let, let you send your employee. He comes back, not only empty-handed, but there's a big bump on his head. You know, he has a cracked rib. You know, what employer is going to say, I know, I'll send another one. <laughs> and then he keeps doing it. It's outrageous. I mean, he's, he's like diminishing his workforce here. Some of them they beat, some of them they killed, and he keeps doing it. So what are we dealing with here? Wow, verse 5, killed. Somebody who is outrageously patient. So <laughs> look, God... This is what Jesus is doing. He's trying to teach us something about God. We might throw these words around. Oh, you know, he's patient. He's long-suffering. No, Jesus says, he is slow to anger. In fact, more than that, he is slow to anger. In fact, he's actually slow anger <laughs> you wondered how long I could do that for right <laughs> but that's what he is he is so slow to anger it's outrageous that is what Jesus is saying this is the way that God is so those of you here who are aspiring to godliness just you should realize this if you are impatient with the people around you you are a million miles away from God a million miles away from God who is because he is so slow to anger that's what the parable is bringing out for us. It's almost crazy. So look, if you look at what you're feeling when he's, what, is, what are you feeling when he sends his son? When he, when he gets to the point where he actually sends his son, what are you thinking? Yeah? She's so brave. Yes. Yeah, are you crazy? I think that's really, that's really good. Are you crazy? Like, don't do this, right? <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> this is not going to end well. It's going to be trouble. And sure enough, it's, the unspeakable happens, right? There they are, twirling their mustaches, you know. I know we're going to kill him. Accompanied, the scene suggests, by a sinister laugh, right? We'll get the air. <laughs> right? Okay, back to real life. Back to real life. Let me ask you something. Why was Jesus telling this parable to the people? Why was he telling it to them? 
Why was he, you know, he could have taken the apostles aside by themselves, right? And he could have said to them, by so, let me tell you what's really going on. Let me tell you a story. It tells you what's going on out here in Jerusalem. No, he doesn't. He tells it to everybody, including the, the rulers. Why is he telling this parable to the rulers? There could only be one reason. And it is part of this outrageous long-suffering of God again. He is giving them another chance to repent. He is telling this story to the rulers so that they might see themselves in the story and repent and be forgiven, which they could have done. Do you see this? Even while they're twirling their mustaches at him and plotting his murder, he is holding out for them one more time a chance to receive him. Because that's what it's all about, how you receive the son. If in the parable, the wicked tenants had respected the son, we know the story would have turned out very differently, right? And so here it is in Jerusalem, Jesus is holding it out to the religious leaders, saying, if you recognize me, it'll change everything. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter how many things, you have, you have awfully trashed this vineyard, and you have destroyed what God has done, if you can just receive me, it'll change the story. That is the outrageous landlord. That is the heart of the outrageous landlord. That's what Jesus was doing with them. See? The same is true of us. Sometimes you wonder, why is God not acting in this situation? Why is he waiting so long? Why is he waiting so long to judge the things that are going wrong in this world? There's so much going wrong in the world. It's for this same reason. He is holding out, he is trying to hold out opportunities for people to escape the ultimate condemnation, giving them another chance through his outrageous long-suffering. And this is, what he, this is how he does it. This is what he holds out to you. You have this opportunity. <clears throat> it all depends on how you receive the Son. And friends, those of you who are here who maybe you don't know this Son, you don't know this one, it all depends on how you receive the Son of the Landlord. Doesn't matter what you've done. Does not matter what you've done. If you turn and respond to him in this way, if you receive the son, there will be peace in your life. You'll have the peace of the landlord. You'll have the vine itself and the fruit of that vine in Christ. You can have that if you respond to the son in a positive way. That's what it's about. That's what all of it's about. And for those of you waiting for God, to act, count his long-suffering uh, as his opportunity for those in a situation to repent. Because that's what it is about. So as we're coming to the table now, um, let's recognize this. His long-suffering does not last forever. You know, just like I ran out of breath there at one point. <laughs> Eventually, the long-suffering does end. There will be a reckoning. But it's all about how you receive the Son. 
You know, it's a, great th- it's a great point to go on as we do read in the Gospel of Mark. We find there are some good tenants in Jerusalem. There's a scribe who gets it. There's this woman who, you know, she recognizes the love of God and gives her whole, her whole uh, sustenance, her whole, her whole living to God for the sake of Jerusalem. And that's the proper response. When you understand the love of the landlord, what's the response? To give your whole self. To him and that's what he calls on us to do this is the one who sent his son into such a dangerous situa- situation who would do that as we turn to the table what we're going to be celebrating is that it's not just somebody who had bad judgment it was somebody who knew this was what is needed this was what was needed for us so now turn to him as we come receive him as we receive the sacrament the only begotten one, and be at peace. Amen.